Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. Today's guest is Emily Bazelon. Emily is a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine and the Truman Capote Fellow for Creative Writing and Law at Yale Law School. She is the author of Charged, the New Movement to Transform American Prosecution and End Mass Incarceration. Emily is also the co-host of Slate's Political Gab Fest podcast. She has appeared on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Fresh Air, This American Life, and pretty much all the other big shows. And needless to say, I'm grateful she took the time to come on this one. In our discussion, we cover the outsized and unchecked power of prosecutors in our justice system. What one thing Emily would do to change that system? Whether she's a prison abolitionist, Tiffany Caban's prospects should she win the Queen's DA race, whether it's better to get progressive prosecutors in office or pursue state-level reforms, what Jeffrey Epstein says about the rule of law, and Kamala Harris's record as a prosecutor and what it means for her candidacy. There aren't many people who know more about these issues, so I'm excited to bring you Emily Bazelon. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's start with your book, Charged. Uh, why did you choose to write this book? Um, I got interested in this topic of prosecutorial power a number of years ago when I was working on a story about the three strikes law in California. And what happened was that there was a conservative Republican district attorney in Los Angeles who was interested in trying to reform three strikes. Um, he thought it was too harsh. And I was interested in that, so I called him to ask why. And he told me a story about a homeless man named Gregory Taylor who had tried to get into a food pantry that was locked because he was hungry. And the file for this case landed not on Steve Cooley, the DA's desk, but on the desk of the prosecutor next to him. And that prosecutor decided to charge Gregory Taylor with a third strike. And he actually got a life sentence. And so Steve Cooley told me the story because he was saying that he would not have brought that third strike against Gregory Taylor if that had been his case. And so because he thought the outcome was too harsh, it had persuaded him that it was time to to, uh, time to reform the three strikes law. And I heard that story and just thought that it seemed just wild that the fact that a case file landed on one prosecutor's desk instead of another's would have such an enormous impact on a man's life. And so ever since then, I've been just alive to the um, to the idea of prosecutorial power. And I think once you see it, you kind of notice it everywhere um, in the criminal justice system because it is such a powerful factor. Yeah. And, and so what role do prosecutors play in our system in the popular conception and then in reality? I think in the popular conception, we have this idea that prosecutors and defense lawyers are like the bottom points of a triangle, that they have the same kind of power. It's like an equal level playing field. And then the judge is the impartial referee who's at the top of the triangle making the key decisions. But in reality, prosecutors have really shifted into this top position in a lot of ways. And that's largely because of mandatory minimum sentences, which passed a lot in the 1980s in response to rising crime and a kind of concern about tying the hands of softy judges. The thing about mandatory minimums that we didn't really talk about at the time is that they took discretion away from judges, but they didn't eliminate it. Instead, they moved discretion into the charging and plea bargaining phase of a case, right? Because if the punishment is mandatory, then it's kind of baked into the charge. 
And it's prosecutors who decide what to charge and then what kinds of plea bargains to offer. And those have really become the key steps in a case. And they don't have very much to do with judges at all. So they're in the hands of a person who has a responsibility to do justice for sure, but is also trying to win convictions. And that's just like a fundamental shift in perspective that's that's really, I think, had uh, the effect of driving mass incarceration. Yeah. So, so you talk about how prosecutors will often bring as many charges as possible with the most severe sentences. And the idea here is to get a plea bargain from the defendant that will be like much less than the uh, actual charges at the top of the, you know, at the top of the list. Um, can you talk about the trial penalty? Yeah, sure. So um, the way the trial penalty works is that a prosecutor often will start a case with like the maximum charge they could possibly bring. Prosecutors often have choices about how to charge a crime. And if you start at the top and you can threaten a heavier sentence, you can leverage that threat to persuade, or some people would say coerce someone into pleading guilty. And the way you do that is you say, okay, well, you know, you're facing five years in prison. If you plead guilty, you'll get six months or you'll get just probation. And then the person who's looking at that calculus, even if they're innocent, may think, wait a second, that's a real roll of the dice. Do I really want to bet that the jury is going to see the case my way? Or am I just much better off taking this lower punishment? Even if it's still going to have a serious effect on my life of leaving me with a record. And in some cases, even if I'm still innocent, we know that about 18% of the people who've been exonerated because of DNA evidence are actually innocent. So that's a way in which we see the trial penalty operating to convince people who didn't do it that they're better off take, not taking the risk of going to trial. Yeah. And this really matters because something like 97, 98% of all cases end in a plea bargain rather than going to trial. Yeah, exactly. So we have this trial penalty operating in a way that essentially has all but eliminated the trial. It's such a heavy penalty to go to trial that almost nobody wants to take the risk. Yeah. Yeah. And can you talk about uh, the Brady disclosure and, and what that means? Yeah, sure. So the Brady rule comes from the 1960s. And it's the Supreme Court saying, look, in order to have the guarantee of due process and equal protection in the Constitution, we're going to make sure that if the government has evidence against uh, evidence that could help you prove your innocence, they will tell you about it. And the reason for that is that it's the police who have the power to investigate and the resources to do that, right? And so the state collects this information. They're the ones who control it. Defendants much rarely have the resources to perform their own kind of thorough investigation. So the idea is that if along the way the police find out something that you know, points to another suspect or in some way makes the case harder to prove, you should know that because you're not going to be able to figure it out yourself. And that rule is a really important constitutional protection um, when it's properly followed, but it's a limited rule. It, in, the, in the Supreme Court's view, only applies before a trial. And so in this world in which we have very few trials, it's really been kind of up to different states and different local DA's offices to decide when to turn over this evidence. And the when part of it's really crucial, because if you don't get the evidence potentially until right before a trial, you're not going to be able to have it in hand as you're making your decision about whether or not to plead guilty. Yeah, this is a strategy sometimes, right, where people will not, you know, the police prosecutors will not let you discover the evidence against you until right before the trial, leaving, you know, your defense with very little time to prepare. 
Yeah, that is a big problem. Um, it's like New York has just changed its law to, to prevent this from happening. But up until now, it's been called the blindfold law in New York because essentially you're kind of going blind as you're preparing your case. States and some DAs are increasingly saying, wait a second, this isn't fair and trying to make sure that there are better provisions for getting information earlier. But that is by no means universal across the country. Yeah. And what, what is the argument against allowing the defense to see all the information held against them as soon as it's available? Well, I mean, one thing is just tactical advantage, right? If prosecutors have this power, they're not necessarily going to be eager to give it up. Mm-hmm. And then I think a more legitimate concern is that if you turn over the name and contact information of a victim or a witness, that a defendant could try to tamper with that witness or even intimidate them or hurt them. And so all the states that have provided for turning over more evidence earlier also have these protections so that if a prosecutor is worried about a victim or a witness, they can go to the judge and say, hey, wait a second. You know, normally we turn this over, but this is a person who we need to be more protective of. And courts tend to be very sensitive to those kinds of requests. Obviously, like they're worried about witness safety um, as much as prosecutors are. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, And I think one of the most stunning things I learned from this book was uh, prosecutorial immunity, where they basically cannot be, you know, sued at all, no matter what they do. Is, Is that correct? It's yes, <laughs> it is a really extreme rule. It's called absolute immunity. Uh, the police have what's called qualified immunity. That's pretty good if you're trying to avoid getting sued. But prosecutors' absolute immunity means that if they could say in any way that what they did was in the course of doing their job, they can't be sued. And the Supreme Court really added to that problem several years ago with another court decision that makes it very hard to sue a prosecutor's office or a city if you have even very egregious evidence of prosecutorial misconduct. And so the problem with all of this is it kind of creates this culture of impunity for prosecutors. Yeah. I mean, so so in practice, this could mean that a prosecutor could bring murder charges against you. Uh, You know you're innocent. They withhold evidence and they, you know, bring the charges and take you to trial or maybe you take a plea, you sue them and it turns out you're exonerated and like literally nothing might happen to the prosecutor who destroyed your life. Yeah, that is possible. You're right. And when the Supreme Court set these rules up, they said, look, don't worry, because if there's a prosecutor who's doing abusive, terrible things, another prosecutor will come along and prosecute them. That we know actually almost never happens. And the other problem is that the legal profession is has proved to be very reluctant to take away the bar cards or even suspend the licenses of prosecutors who commit constitutional violations. And so part of my book tells a story about that. And you really see the, the real limitations of the legal profession in policing itself and making sure that Um, prosecutors are being held accountable. And the problem with all this, of course, is that when you have people with a lot of power, if that power is unchecked, then there are going to be some people who abuse it. And and that is the the issue we're contending with here. Yeah. And so I I think on the left, people generally see prosecutors as like the bad guy. You know, these are people who are wantonly destroying lives and have no meaningful accountability. And then among conservatives or maybe like more establishment figures, they see prosecutors as like overall trying to do good and occasionally they make mistakes, but it's like a well-intentioned group. Do you think which which of those is more fair or like what third option would you uh, 
put out there to describe <laughs> like how these how this came to be. I mean, in my experience, most prosecutors have really high ethical standards and they're not going around trying to destroy people's lives, right? Like that's not why people get into it. They get into the job to do justice. I think sometimes there is a kind of white hat assumption that that gets um, kind of inculcated over time where prosecutors want to see themselves as the good guys and sometimes they start to cut corners in order to win convictions because they're persuaded someone's guilty or they just look past the mistakes or the problems that other people in their office are making and they don't call them out on it. But, you know, I think mostly we're talking about a minority of people who really commit um, abuses of like really breaking the rules. It's just that for those minority of people, there are so few consequences that, you know, people's lives are damaged or ruined in the process. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't take that many prosecutors to do terrible damage to even if it's a small number of people, we're still talking about like real miscarriage of justice. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, and if you could unilaterally change any one thing about the criminal justice system, what would you do? That's a great question. <laughs> I, I'm always torn about this. I think one thing I would want to do, quickly would be to eliminate mandatory minimum sentences. Mm. I think they've driven so much of the power of balance that I am writing about. And also they've just created a kind of ratcheting up of punishment in general that has really led to, you know, the, the vast over-incarceration that we have now. So that's one place to start. I mean, there are other levers you could pull. You could try to deal with this question of accountability. But I, I think if you were really just trying to have a across-the-board effect on reducing the prison population and making prosecutors just less um, – having less unchecked power, that that would be a good place to begin. Yeah, seems like a good place to start. Um... Do you think retribution has any role in our justice system? I do think it has some role. Yes, I think there are people who we just decide for lots of reasons are people we just want to punish. You know, Jeffrey Epstein comes to mind right now. He's in the news, obviously, for his like for being a serial rapist of girls and young women. And that just seems horrifying and like something that we do want to punish. I think for the most part, though, we would be much better off with a system that was more rational and more focused on deterrence um, to some degree. And then also just on thinking about how you keep the public safe, but at the same time, make it so that people who you think you have to put into jail or prison, that that's as small a number as possible, and that the people um who go in are in better shape when they come out because almost everybody who goes to jail or prison does come out. And then you want them to be able to contribute to society in some way and to be people who are not going to commit more crimes. And that's one thing I think the American system is just terrible at. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. Uh, Do you identify as an abolitionist and what would you kind of mentioned this, but what would your criminal justice system look like in an ideal society? Um, you know, I think you, I'm not a prison abolitionist. I see the, the goal of it. I see why people are advocating for imagining a different world. I'm sort of a literalist at heart. And there are people who commit, you know, murder and rape or like huge degrees of fraud and perpetuate great harm who I think should be separated for some amount of time from society. So the literalist in me does not 
think that we can totally abolish jails and prisons, but I think we could completely shift the system so that we are making it as small as possible and, and thinking of jail and prison as the very last resort. And for everyone else, imagining a world in which we want to make them, as I was saying, like people who can contribute more rather than less when they come back. Or And the other thing I guess I would say is that Right now, because we're not good at treating mental health problems in the United States or dealing with substance abuse, we're using the criminal justice system as this net where we catch all these people whose problems are not really about being like dangerous, violent people. They're really about problems of desperation, Um, you know, people who are having drug problems or who are psychologically ill. And it would just be so much better if we could figure out another way to handle ca- all those cases. Yeah. And and there are people, you know, we, you've written a lot about the progressive prosecutor and the rise of district attorneys who are actually doing the opposite of what they've done for decades, which is promising to put fewer people in prison and bring, you know, less charges, more diversion programs. Can you just like speak to the rise of this movement and uh, what you think is causing it? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was really exciting to be working on my book while this movement was taking shape and then starting to have really important electoral victories in some big cities starting in 2016. You start seeing people get elected as DA who are saying, hey, I want to make the system more fair and I want to shrink the number of people in jail and prison and make sure that it's not as um, racially discriminatory. That's a really important shift. And when you have prosecutors leading the way, you they bring a kind of credibility and authority with them. So you have a new kind of lobbying force. Traditionally, prosecutors have always asked legislators for the harshest possible punishments, right? They've been part of creating the system we have of mandatory minimum sentences. If you have prosecutors saying, wait a second, we envision a different kind of system, we're going to rally behind... Um, other alternatives, then you just have like a different voice of moral authority in the political sphere. And so my real hope is that in these cities that have progressive prosecutors, they're going to thrive. Like the cities are going to be safer and healthier. And then that will become a model that helps convince legislators to enact reform statewide. Yeah, I think the race that's uh, gotten the most attention recently was Tiffany Caban running for Queens District Attorney. And I wrote about this and, and volunteered on her campaign. Uh, assuming that she wins, it's actually up in the air at the moment. Can you think of any prosecutor in the country who would be more progressive than Caban has pledged to be? Well, I think Caban has made an incredibly progressive set of promises. And if she's in office, it's going to be fascinating to watch her try to enact them, right? She'll be coming in as a total outsider. She's a pretty young public defender. And I think that could be great, but it's also going to be super challenging because she's been to, take, she's going to be taking over a big office of prosecutors who have been doing it very differently for a long time. She'll probably have to figure out how to have some of them leave and then how to really change the culture. And that is an enormous heavy lift of leadership. So it will be really important for her to have excellent people around her to help her do that if she gets to be the DA. Yeah. A friend of mine who actually worked uh, in Rachel Rowland's office in, in Suffolk County, uh, is a little bearish on progressive prosecutors. And there's a good article in the Harvard Law Review, uh, The Paradox of the Progressive Prosecutor. And they say, for many reasons, that it's like not a good bet. Uh, one of the ones they cite is that police have a lot of discretion themselves and can kind of not comply with the progressive prosecutor's vision. Um, and then if the progressive prosecutor gets 
voted out, you know, they, the new DA could actually bring charges that were not brought previously. What do you think the strongest case is against focusing on electing progressive prosecutors in the fight to end mass incarceration? Well, the cleanest solution to mass incarceration is for state lawmakers to change the laws, right? Mm -hmm. And I keep talking about the state lawmakers instead of Congress because more than 2 million of the 2.2 million people in jail and prison in the U.S. are in state and local jails. So the state and local scene is much more important than the federal scene for criminal justice policy. Um. And the thing about legislators is like they have the power to change the law and that lasts over time and it's not dependent on the discretion of one DA. And when you're thinking about how a system should ideally work, having a prosecutor like Rachel Rollins in Boston come in and say, you know what, I'm going to decline to prosecute a bunch of offenses. Well, that is a big effect, but it means also that there are laws that are not being um, – not being implemented in the way that they were in the past. And that that's, I mean, that's one solution, but it's probably not the cleanest one, like I was saying. So, you know, that's one question about the idea of using the DA's office as the lever for change. I think the response is that, you know, getting a legislature to enact major reforms, especially involving public safety, this like super hot button issue for a long time, that's a really heavy lift. Whereas local voters in a city like Boston can turn out and they can change this one public official and have a big impact. So, you know, that's the sort of counterpoint of um, the counterpoints of that debate. Yeah. I mean, just this week, Larry Krasner, who is probably the most progressive prosecutor in the country, is uh, Philadelphia's DA, was just reined in a little bit by the state legislature in Pennsylvania, which is kind of like allowing the state attorney general to take over gun cases that he declines to prosecute. Um, so this is like an exact counterexample to relying on state legislatures where district attorneys uh, would otherwise act. Yeah. And this is a really interesting development as DAs become more progressive and try to use their discretion um, to make the system fairer and less carceral, we're seeing pushback from legislators that we didn't used to see before. And also from judges and the cops and sometimes probation and parole departments. And so there's a kind of irony here, right? It's like everyone thought it was great for, for prosecutors to be super powerful until they changed their own orientation in the system. And, and watching that interplay is like such an important part of this picture going forward. Yeah, I mean, because for decades, you know, prosecutors may have played the biggest role in mass incarceration, but they were working in tandem with legislators and police and you know other parties across the country. And now you've got prosecutors in a few places, you know, kind of breaking rank and doing something else and getting reined in through those same power structures. Yeah, and I think what we're seeing here is the status quo, right? The way in which once you have a system in place, there are incentives for other actors in that system to keep it the way it is. They're not eager for change. And it's not the same thing as public support. I mean, when you look at polls and surveys, you see actually increasing public support for electing people who promise to reduce incarceration. And it's bipartisan in nature. So I think this pushback has more to do with the kind of entrenched interests within the system than it does with a kind of popular rejection of a progressive platform. Yeah. And so you mentioned uh, Jeffrey Epstein, who is facing charges, I think, in the Southern District of New York for a litany of sex crimes. And it seems like half of the ruling class is implicated in these as well. Um, and it was, also came out that 
Manhattan's district attorney, Cy Vance, fought to get Epstein's sex offender status reduced. You know, and this stunned the presiding judge. Um, and I've followed the Epstein case for, for years now. Uh, what, what do you think it says about rule of law in this country? It says nothing good about rule of law in this country. I mean, this case seems to expose a kind of rot that, you're right, it extended apparently to Cy Vance's office. It was also in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Southern Florida, where Alex Acosta, uh, who just resigned as labor secretary, was. It, It just is very hard to look at this case and believe in the integrity of the United States criminal justice system because it looks like someone who was very wealthy and well-connected got the kind of kid glove treatment that nobody who was poor um, or black or not well-connected would ever have gotten. And there's just something very alarming about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's tough because I, I personally identify as an abolitionist. Um, I think retribution, when separated from deterrence uh, and like incapacity, taking people out of you know society, preventing harm um, is not really worthwhile. But then you read the details of what this guy did and it's just so blood curdling. Um, and so many people who like just enabled it and looked the other way for, for years is is just beyond disturbing. Yes. <laughs> right. I mean, the problem with retribution for me is that it's playing such an outsized role in our system now. I understand the impulse behind it, but um, I just want it to not have the same huge channel that it has right now. And I can understand your feeling like it should have no place whatsoever. Um, I guess I feel like we don't even need to get all the way there. We're so far from that now where yeah. we have retribution driving so much punishment. Yeah. I mean, I think that there can be punishment that acts as deterrent, but as soon as it goes above and beyond any deterrent effects, that's that's where I get off the train. Um, and that could look like a very similar thing. You know, the Scandinavian system um, has some faults, faults, but, you know, it is far better than what we have. And, you know, prison still does act as a deterrent there just because people don't want their freedom to be removed. But I do think people generally come out of that system better than they came into it. Yeah, it, the Scandinavians are doing some things very differently and much better than we are, for sure. One, one interesting thing about it is that in a few of the countries, they have really high rates of pretrial detention and solitary confinement, um, well above and beyond uh, how it's used in the, in the United States, which is kind of like crazy to me. Uh, they think that you can't have somebody be awaiting trial and then like out in the public because they'll go and affect the you know evidence and, and try and intimidate witnesses or something. Yeah, well, that to me seems like a mistake. I mean, this is partly because what I learned from my reporting about our cash bail system is that we have two thirds of the people in jails and prison are there before they've pled guilty to crimes. And I just can't quite get my mind around the idea that people who are presumed innocent should be in jail unless we have a really good reason to think that they're a public safety threat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But in like Denmark, they actually keep them in solitary confinement pre-trial. Um, yeah. I hope that they, they have faster trials than we have here because here you could wait for years. And, you know, there's a lot of evidence that solitary confinement can be a form of torture in itself. Yep, absolutely. Um, so I want to finish by talking 2020 a little bit about one candidate in particular, that's uh, Kamala Harris. And uh, I read an article you wrote about her a while back, but what do you think of her record as a prosecutor in California and how should it inform how we think about her as a presidential candidate? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So I think that Kamala Harris, when she was a DA in San Francisco, she called herself smart on crime. So she was trying to distance herself from like the old school law and order, tough way of doing things. And she did a few things that were fairly innovative. She had a diversion program for nonviolent drug offenders that, you know, by the lights of that time, was something that most cities weren't doing. I think when you look at her record as attorney general, it gets more problematic, not less, which is interesting because that's more recent. And what I'm talking about now is that her office defended cases in which there was really egregious prosecutorial misconduct and there are just other examples of her not being really sensitive um, to the reform movement. I mean, she refused to take a position on some ballot initiatives in California that were going to reduce some really draconian sentences. Uh, and I, I don't find her reasons for that per- to be particularly persuasive. I think what's trickiest about Harris is that she's claiming the mantle of a progressive prosecutor. And whatever she did as DA, the movement has moved far beyond where she was then. And so for people in the movement, it feels like she's watering down that label by claiming it, and they've been resistant to that. The sort of other factor to keep in mind with Harris is that When she ran for attorney general, there were only a couple of black women in the whole country who were winning statewide races at all, anywhere, for any kind of statewide race. And so I think at the time, you know, Harris felt like coming in as a prosecutor with some toughness in her image was really important for convincing people to vote for her and particularly for convincing donors that she might be able to win. And so I see that pressure on her and I want to acknowledge like why she was making some of the um, determinations she was. It seems to me like it complicates the picture for her. Uh, and, And all of this, you know, it partly has to do with judging what she did then. And partly it's about what she's promising now and how she's defending her record. Uh, And, you know, one thing I hear her saying a lot is she still talks a lot about going after anyone accused of a violent crime. And to me, that's um, disappointing because I think that there we we have a lot of people accused of violent crimes in our system. Some of them are not actually acts of violence. Uh, So there's a problem of categorizing certain crimes as violent, even though they don't actually involve harming someone or harming them seriously. And then a second thing is just the, the, the number of years people go to prison for violent crimes. And Harris hasn't really shown, as far as I can tell, much interest in addressing any of that. And I think if you really want to be a progressive in the criminal justice movement right now, you need to be um, open to those ideas as well, because that's what it's going to take to really bring down the incarceration numbers. Yeah, yeah. It's, it seems it's frustrating because she's trying to claim this mantle of just saying she's a progressive prosecutor. It reminds me of Joe Biden claiming to be the most progressive person on the debate stage, which is just patently false. Um, when you look at her record, it's, you know, she prosecuted parents of truant children. And like when she told this story to an audience, she laughed about it. And that just demonstrates a thinking about criminal justice that I find very disturbing. And I haven't seen a ton of evidence that she's really grown. I think when uh, Paul Manafort was sentenced to much less time than like a lot of people thought he would get or should get, you know, she was like, see, he needs to be sentenced just as harshly as everyone else. And that's kind of like her default mode is like, when there's disparity, it's like between crack and powder cocaine, we need to make sure that like powder cocaine is punished just as much as crack cocaine. It's like, whoa, 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 that's not the problem that we're having with this. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I think what you're talking about more generally is a huge problem in the justice system that, well, unfortunately, we see someone who seems to be getting off and our answer is like, okay, well, let's make the rules, let's tighten the screws on everyone, Mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to just make it more consistent or even handed. Yeah, yeah. But then it's also, you know, she didn't go after Steve Mnuchin uh, for, I think, a mortgage fraud in the foreclosure violations in uh, 2013. And it's like, well, if you're really tr- trying to be like a tough prosecutor, it'd be one thing if you went after, you know, street crime and white collar crime with like equal vigor. But if you're just going after the people that can't fight back, that's just like not acceptable to me. Yeah, I mean, this is a failing of the Obama era. I would put it more on the Justice Department than on Harris, where there was just this real reluctance to bring any kind of criminal charges against the big banks and other financial institutions that caused the financial crisis. And I think there's been a real, um, you know, the the prosecutors say they couldn't have won those cases. The law isn't strong enough to allow for victories. But, you know, the problem is that if you don't have accountability, then, of course, you're, well, first of all, it just seems unfair to people. And second of all, you're risking that it's going to happen again. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Emily, we're at time. Where can we find more about you and uh, what would you like to plug? <laughs> well, I wrote a book called Charged, which goes into more depth into the issues that we're talking about. So you can find that at anywhere, your local bookstore, Amazon, wherever you like to buy books. And there's also a companion podcast, which is a six episode mini series from Slate. You can find that on iTunes. And I'm around. I write regularly for The New York Times. I'm on staff there. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Emily. Thanks so much for having me. This has been The Most Interesting People I Know. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. I don't know why this matters, but every other podcast I listen to asks people to do this. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Abrowitz. I hope you enjoyed the show.